Well, there you have another episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio Audio Medicine by Green Zone Hero. This combat veteran is real. He's authentic. He's got one heck of a story, two deployments, one to Iraq, one to Afghanistan. What he's doing now is changing lives. It's educating people about a very serious issue, suicide. His organization, 22to0.org, is one that you need to hear about and support. Thank you very much for listening. Your steely-eyed killer shadow in the night You were born to fight You gotta light them up My name is John Krotek, and I want to welcome you to Straight Outta Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. We're here to honor the wisdom of America's most valuable asset for combat veterans. We're authentic, we're empowering, we're American. Our guest for this episode of Straight Outta Combat Radio is decorated U.S. Army Sergeant First Class Daniel Jarvis. Sergeant Jarvis deployed twice, once to Operation Iraqi Freedom from 2006 to 2007, and then again to Operation Enduring Freedom, Afghanistan from 2011 to 2012. Daniel has earned many decorations to include the Purple Heart, and I'm like I said earlier, I'm glad you're back and intact. The Bronze Star, which they don't just hand out. That's a that's a that's for courage. The Expert Infantry Badge, the Combat in- Infantry Badge, and not one but five Army Commendation Medals. Pretty impressive. His Army training also included a stint as a drill sergeant. And he also completed the Air Assault and the Airborne Schools, United States Army. Again, two schools that are not easy to get through. Daniel served in the Polk County Sheriff's Office from 1996 to 2000. Then again from 2015 to 2017, where he completed several specialized training courses, as well as receiving many commendations. Sergeant Jarvis earned his Bachelor of Arts in Criminology from the University of South Florida in Tampa in 1994, and he earned his Master of Public Administration from the University of Central Michigan in 2011. His current project as Executive Director, 22to0.org, is one that he is totally committed to. Not only is it going to educate people about suicide and suicide prevention, but he's also going to change the lives of people suffering from their trauma in a very positive way. And when we can save one life, we've done something really great. And I got to tell you, Sergeant Jarvis, I am humbled and honored to have you here on Straight Out of Combat Radio. I appreciate it. Thanks for the invite. Absolutely. So let's just get down to it, Sergeant. I know you're used to you know doing things on the fly. Uh, tell me about the Jarvis household where you grew up, who your mentors were, and, and, you know, what your schooling was like. Did you have any pets? Did you like Metallica? <laughs> Whatever you did, tell me about it. Oh, Metallica. That was my deployment music right there. Um, I went to high school in Winter Haven, Florida. Uh, we moved here in 1984. Very blue-collar family. My, my father was was career Navy. He did 21 years in the Navy. He was a submariner. Uh, he retired as a senior chief which he constantly reminds me outranks a sergeant first class, but that's okay. Um, I, you know, I just remember, you know, I was, you know, he was fairly strict. I was a middle kid and, you know, our family unit was intact. My mom was a stay at home mom. 
Uh, she was just phenomenal. Um, but being the middle sibling was always a fight. You know, it was always a dog fight at home. I got to the point where we got into graduate before I got into graduation. I, I played football. I wrestled. I was in athletics. Um, I never did any of the drugs, um, didn't get into any of the partying while I was in school. And um, when I came to, you know, I, I wanted to play football in college and I could remember the conversation with my dad. He's like, well, he goes, well, I don't have money to pay for your college. You got two choices. You can either go in the military or you can start paying rent the day after you graduate. So, you know, that's a man. I'm 17 years old. I'm like, I damn sure don't want to pay rent at this house because I didn't like living there at 17. No kid does. Um, and then right before I graduated, I had a knock on our door and it was the army recruiter. I figured I'd show him, you know, him being a career Navy guy, I'll join the army. And, <laughs> you know, the, uh, the recruiter came and said, Hey, uh, your son wants to join the army, you know, and he need, we need parental consent, both parents. And so I want to talk to you guys about that. Of course, my dad was as nice as he could be. Come on in, come on in. Can I get you a glass of tea? Whatever. He was taking it much better than I was was hoping he would. And when we sat down to sign the papers, I I never forget because the words just like stuck to me. Um, Dad signed it. He was let me have it signed it. And my mom was sitting there literally crying like I don't want him to join the army. He could get hurt. And I'll never forget the voice. Of my dad says, shut up, Bonnie, and sign the damn paper. <laughs> you know, so she signed it. And six weeks later, I was on a bus headed up to Fort Benning, Georgia, and you know, I started my training. We did uh, one station unit training uh, in the infantry, um, all male environment. Um, 17 weeks, I believe it was back then. And I was off to the races at that point. I, mean, I was young. I was fit. You know, I, I was motivated, um, excelled very well in the basic training uh, to the point where I got promoted from E1 to E2 in basic training. And they, they gave me one of the four airborne slots that they had given out. And after basic training, I went to airborne school and that was just kind of really wild because you're locked down for 17 weeks and have like no freedom. Now, all of a sudden you, all right, be here at first formation, 630, you know, at 1700. And you're like, oh, great. Now, <laughs> yeah. now what? Well, they didn't tell us about this part, you know. Um, so I made some pretty good friends there and, and finished up airborne school. I was really surprised at how uh, – how many people washed out of it? You know, we started with a class of like 750 and I think they graduated like 350. I didn't really think it was that difficult physically, uh, but they had foreign students there. They had, they had a SEAL team that came in there. That was pretty entertaining. Just, it was a good time and went to Fort Campbell, Kentucky on orders, went to the 101st Airborne. And of course there, everybody's got to go to air assault school. So once they physically prepare you for that, you, you go to aerosol school, uh, never walked so much in my entire life, uh, being with a light infantry unit. I mean, we literally, you know, we would do 25 mile road marches like it was, you know, no big deal. And uh, I had a two year enlistment out of high school and came up to the point where, you know, do I reenlist? Do I not? And I said, well, I want to go to college. You know, I want to maybe go back and become an officer, you know, whatever. So I leave service July 30th of 1990. And I'm literally, I'm, I'm, I'm visiting family. And then all of a sudden, August 2nd, you know, breaking news, Saddam goes into Kuwait. Uh, had a buddy of mine who was literally supposed to get out right behind me, like four days right behind me. And I called him up. I said, hey, what's going on? He goes, man, he goes, you'll never believe this shit. Pardon my language. You can believe that if you it's want to. It's all good. Sorry, the drill sergeant, me. I, I, I've done really well at, you know, kind of holding that back. But um, 
he, so he said, yeah, I, I out-processed division. I was getting ready to sign out. I sat down and they came in and said, sorry, we got to reprocess you back into the division. You've just been a sob loss. So he was literally 15 minutes away. Um, I was like, well, that sucks. And then shortly thereafter, I got a, a Western Union mailgram said that you're hereby recalled to active duty. And I'm like, well, that sucks. And uh, went to back up to Fort Benning, Georgia, for a couple weeks and was getting ready to get an assignment. They were sending units to Germany. They were sending units to Hawaii and sending units to Korea. Because basically what they were doing is they pulled active duty units out of those areas and they were backfilling the reserves that they called back in to, to fill those units. Let me ask you a couple questions here real quick. Sure. Um, what did you, you know, did your parents come to your graduation when you got out of basic training? Did they go to any of your graduations? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They came to family day. They came to graduation. They came to my airborne school graduation. They came to all that. Yeah. They're very supportive of that. And, uh, you know, obviously because you're an athlete before you went in, I know that helped you through a great portion of that, those pushups and all that. Is there any story, Daniel, that you can, anything that happened in your training, funny, sad, mad, when you finally, anything that sticks out the most in your training at that stage? At that stage, at that early on, I, you know, um, I got, I got selected to be the platoon guide for my platoon. And I remember, uh, we were having a lot of stuff that was coming up missing and we kind of had an idea of who was taking the stuff. And I went in to talk to the drill sergeant about it. He goes, Jarvis, I'm going to tell you something. What you need to do is go back in there, whoever you think it is, and tell them that if that stuff doesn't get returned, that you and the other squad leaders are going to take him into the latrine and handle business yourself. And, I, and, I, and then he goes, but I don't want to know about it if you do. So I, I did that, approached this guy, and I said, this is the deal. Um, you've got, we're all going down to formation. You've got about maybe 10 minutes before you got to be down there. The stuff has to be returned or, you know, we're, we're going to take care of it. And you're not going to like how we take care of it. Um, that's the old army. That's, doesn't that doesn't work well in the new army um you know i just it is what it is but he, sure enough the stuff got returned and <laughs> no doubt, that yeah. dude fell into fell into line and you know he, he did what he was supposed to do the rest of that cycle so uh yeah he was out he was from the hawaii national guard i remember that it's amazing how peer pressure you know works in mysterious ways especially yeah that that's a great story thanks for telling us that so okay so then you're into the the first combat deployment. Okay. First combat deployment in Iraq would have been 2006. Uh, I had just been promoted. I, when I went back on active duty because I had a degree, I was a specialist, but I, I got promoted to E5 uh, within probably, I think it was about 16 months of coming back on active duty. Uh, Cause at that time I'd already been a police officer and, you know, I was pretty responsible. Uh, had a fire team, uh, Went into Iraq. It was kind of surreal. I, re I remember we're on the airplane. We're flying to Kuwait and the platoon sergeant called the NCOs for us. Hey, look, <laughs> been here before. It's going to be hot. And he goes, I can't even tell you how hot it's going to be, but just understand it's going to be hot. So watch your guys. Make sure, you know, you don't, you know, you, they have to acclimate and whatnot. Um, and when we got off the airplane, it was August 6th, I think it was August 6th of 2006. And I, and I kid you not, it was about 145 degrees on the tarmac in Kuwait with about a 10 mile an hour wind. 
And yeah, I, you, you can't really, ex- I've been to both extremes. I've been Fairbanks, Alaska, and I've been to Kuwait and that's a tough one. I don't know. I think I still might take Kuwait over Fairbanks, but um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's intense. It was an intense heat that I had never experienced before. Did you guys know why you were there? Yeah, we, well, we, we did know why we were there. We were there to do a mission and that mission was to uh, provide stability operations for the people in the area that we were patrolling or were responsible for. Um, at that point of the war, that was before the surge, you know, there was a lot of stuff going on. There was a lot of IEDs. So we, we really knew um, that, you know, we had to be on our game. When we actually, we had to fly from Kuwait, we had to do two weeks of acclimation in Kuwait. Uh, the unit I was with is called the Wolfhounds, the 27th Infantry Regiment. And probably one of the best units that I've ever been affiliated with, uh, fully committed to their mission, very physically fit for an infantry unit as they should be, but I've seen them where they weren't. And we, we got into Iraq. We flew into Kirkuk. I think it was five warrior. And we were there waiting to get placed. We had to get briefings on the area specific to where we were going to be assigned intelligence and stuff like that. And we were there for maybe about two weeks and then it was ready to go. And I'll never forget. They, you know, we, we kitted up, you know, we, we locked and loaded at that point. We got on helicopters, uh, Chinooks, and we started flying into, and as we would fly into the base, they would fly, get their guys out of the base. So one helicopter would come in, drop off guys, and they would load their guys up, take those guys back to Bob Warrior where they would start processing out. Uh, we, we relieved the, um, 101st Airborne, and I'm not sure which battalion. I think it was 502nd, and you know it was just a just a steady handoff. Uh, initially, it was just the leadership going in because we had to do what was called the right seat ride uh, versus the left seat ride. Right seat ride means um, we actually left seat ride comes first because they're in the right, they're in the TC, the truck command spot, and basically we're assigned to the vehicles as leaders to start doing patrols with them, and then as we get we have to go through our, our process of, of doing the relief in place. Then they would, we would bring more of our guys in, send more of theirs out until all that was left was their leadership. Uh, I, I never forget the, the moment we landed, it was probably midnight. Um, uh, we got there in August. So it was probably maybe the third week of August. We landed at midnight on uh, Fob McHenry, which is in Hawija, Iraq. And I'm telling you, Everything was blacked out. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face. That's how dark it was. So that was kind of eerie because you're literally, you're now boots on the ground in hostile territory, surrounded by people who don't like you. And, you know, we, we got assigned our rooms and then we got ready to start doing the patrols. But yeah, that was, that was a wake up call for me. I could imagine. So, so you know, so what I was going to get to that, what were the Iraqi people like in the area that you guys were in? The Iraqi, it really depends. Uh, the kids in Iraq were very friendly. Um, they liked us. The adults, not so much. Um, I would say, I think maybe half of them probably didn't really care that we were even there. The other half, you know, we just didn't really interact with. Uh, we had, um, I mean, I've had positive interactions with Iraqis. I've had negative interactions. Most of them, you know, when we're there and literally we're fully kitted up and full battle rattle, you know, I, you might weigh 300 pounds with all your gear. So you're like a giant to them. So they're, they're very intimidated by you. 
the insurgents are a little bit different and most of the insurgents that we encountered were kind of low level. We had a lot of um, Iraqi police that were insurgents. So we were constantly catching those guys placing IEDs. And, you know, that was that was kind of crazy because we're sitting there. We're having to work side by side with these guys. And then at night, they're they're kind of placing IEDs out on us. What, so, you know, what kept you focused the whole time, you think? Um, I think for me, I was I think uh, it was like 37 at the time when I was in Iraq. Uh, my focus was my men taking care of my guys. Um, I, I got promoted even probably two months after getting to Iraq to staff sergeant. And then I became a squad leader. And then, you know, I had two NCOs to worry about. And I had, you know, six junior enlisted guys to worry about. Uh, my focus was making sure they knew what they were supposed to do and making sure that the sergeants were taking care of, of their issues and then executing the mission. Um, we we did take a lot of casualties in Iraq in a, in a battalion of around 700. We lost 17 Americans and we lost an interpreter that was assigned to, to our Delta company. Um, so we, we took a lot of casualties, you know, a lot of guys were medevaced out of there. Um, it was, we expected every time we went out, we were going to get engaged by the enemy. Uh, typically it's IED emplacements. Uh, we are convoys. We probably hit a few of them. Uh, most of the IEDs, I'd say about 80% of them that we found. And, you know, a lot of time it's we're on patrol, suspected IED, QRF brings EOD of EOD. That's the explosives ordinance disposal. If they weren't. Uh, connected to our patrol, then we would have to call and have to wait for the QRF to bring them up and deal with the IED. And then QRF would take EOD back and we'd finish our patrol. Um, a lot of the IEDs that we had were placed strategically, um, typically between villages, so that if an IED goes off, they knew Americans were on the way and it gave an egress time for the enemy to get out of there. Uh, we, we chased a lot of bad intel. Um, we rechased Intel that was already bad. Very, very few times did we actually get what we thought was solid information, solid intel. Uh, but we, you know, we were proactive. We, we did some pretty cool missions. I mean, we did aerial reaction force missions where, you know, instead of spinning up the quick reaction force, the QRF, they would spin up the, what they call an ARF. Um, and platoon would be on helicopters, would be on two, our platoon would be on two Blackhawks. We were airborne. And, you know, we would hit an objective or sometimes we would just drive around and the lieutenant would say, I want that. I want to stop that car. And then we would sit there and hover on the road, stop the vehicle, dismount. One vehicle would circle and stay and one squad would, would dismount. And, you know, yeah, we, we thought it was pretty cool. I mean, it, 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 it was a lot of fun, um, but there was times where it wasn't fun. Did you guys feel like you were making a difference? Did it feel did it feel good? Um, I think we were making a difference because the way that area of Iraq was before we left and the way we left it, it's two totally different places. We, we, um, we did quite a bit. Uh, we, you know, we got into a lot of firefights. Uh, we killed a lot of bad guys and yeah, I think we did make a difference there. Um, one of the operations that we did in Iraq, it ended up being a, um, probably a two day operation. We air assaulted in. Uh, flew in on Chinooks and then we just started going house to house through the villages and I, I never forget we were at Riyadh um, clearing one of the one of our companies got hit with an IED and there was a small firefight engagement but we're basically running phase lines as a battalion through this pretty large city you know and uh, you know we, I never forget we, we, we walked we got into this lady's house we secured it and we were at the, the head of the phase line so we had to hold for the rest of the battalion and 
she had kids and the kids were playing with our guys and um, she was offering to feed us, offering us tea, you know, very, very kind. Um, wasn't what I expected. That was probably my closest interaction with a, a local national, local civilian where you're like, wow, these people are, you know, they're just like everybody else. Yeah. At least that was my take on it. What was the morale like? Uh, obviously, you know, different units have different, <laughs> different morales, but I mean, in your particular unit, sounds like you guys were pretty high speed. Yeah. Morale was very good in the battalion. Uh, pretty much we had good leadership and, you know, at least at our local level, our platoon had really solid leaders. Um, so we had issues above us, but we never let that filter down to the guys. And as long as we're able to like hold, you know, the, the negative from above us and they don't, it doesn't tri- trickle down, then they basically will just accept that as the way it is. So, so that's, that was a good, um, it was a good way to handle it. Uh, I mean, we've, we've had our, our share of, we had one commander who used to like to, uh, you know, come onto our convoys and our patrols and we would be hitting a, a village and all of a sudden he would get some information and he would take off running and he'd have like some Iraqi soldiers with him. And I'm like, the hell the heck is this guy doing? And my, my platoon leader says, Hey, go get him. So I had to take my squad. And this guy was a, like a track star. He, he looked like Dolph Lundgren from, from, <laughs> from Rocky four. Um, so he's on a dead sprint. He, he, I mean, we're talking, he did a 1500 meter sprint and Mal's so pissed because as a leader, you know, he, he's going through all these danger areas, which are open alleyways with no cover, you know, just moving. Um, so he, it really irritated me because he put my guys in, in jeopardy to the point where the second time he went on a mission to, and he did the same thing, the lieutenant said, stand down, let him go. And he went, he realized all he had was about five Iraqis and he decided to come back uh, because on the ground in, in that element where it's just a platoon, the ground force commander is the lieutenant, not the company commander. Had there been another platoon on the ground, you know, then he would have had command and control of both elements. So, LT said, just let him go. We let him go and he came right back. He realized that, you know, he was kind of stepping outside the the scope of his responsibility. Oh man. Well, thank God for him. Or thank God he made it back. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you guys, when you came time to go with that deployment, obviously you're happy to to get out of there. And then uh, you had a little bit of a break before Afghanistan. Well, let me just rephrase this. We were happy during the course of a 12 month deployment but morale took a serious downturn when we got extended during the surge. So we literally went from what was supposed to be a 12 month deployment and 10th mountain division was going to start relieving us to we had, now we have another three months and that was a kick in the groin for a lot of people because we had soldiers that were stop lost uh, and we lost soldiers that were stop lost. In other words, they weren't allowed to leave service before we deployed because once that order goes in, into effect, then they have to continue their reserve obligation on active duty. So we did lose um, one or two guys that were in that category after the the, the extension. That's too bad. Yeah, we um, yeah, it was that's you know, it's one of those things where you know something out of our control. So, so when you when you finish the the three month the redeployment i guess or uh, extension yeah you came back to the states did you did you out process and go civilian or did you what was going on then or did you stay in uh, at that point i stayed on active duty uh we we got back to hawaii uh we had a lot of issues with guys a lot of duis 
Um, a lot of guys were getting in trouble for drugs. Uh, matter of fact, we had a sergeant from our platoon who on October 13th, 2008, he overdosed on cocaine and died 18 hours after getting back from Iraq. So we dealt with a lot of loss that very short time after coming back. We probably had three to four fatalities, traffic accidents, alcohol-related shooting incidences. Uh, we didn't have any suicides at that point that we know of. Um, but of the active duty guys that we deployed with, we lost three or four after coming home. Uh, so after we got back, I mean, it was we had to, you know, readjust and start our, our um, training cycles again. I mean, there was a good maybe a month or so where they allowed the guys to get have work half days and have a lot of four day weekends to let them kind of decompress. And Hawaii was a great place for that because there's so much, you know, it was such a chill environment anyways. And a lot of guys would spend time surfing, going to the beach, fishing, scuba diving and stuff like that. So that was good. Did you um, know, did you notice anything with your transition or was it just business as usual? Um, well, when I got back from Iraq, I found myself drinking a lot, like, a lot of heavy drinking. And, you know, I had actually re-enlisted when I was in Iraq. So I was given a period of time when we re redeployed that I was allowed to take a break, go to school. So I basically would have to show up on Fridays at first formation, report in and say, all right, see you next Friday. And I was, that's when I was started working on my graduate degree. Um, but it was a, it was an adjustment. It took me a couple months, but I got back to a normal rhythm after, you know, after getting back. Uh, and then I came down on orders for drill sergeant duty. And I was, that was a shock too, because I actually reenlisted so I could go back to Iraq with a unit the following 12 months. Okay, that's, so, that's a tough school. Drill sergeant school is not, that's one of the no, toughest schools no. in the army, isn't it? Yeah. Drill sergeant school. Well, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's tough because you're a non-commissioned officer and now you have a, a peer that you may outrank by a time and grade, time and service, who now has control over you. That's it's hard in that respect because they 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 do the same thing like you're you're cycled like the privates would be, so that you can see what that cycle process is like. Um, I did not enjoy drill sergeant school, especially having to pitch modules. And what that is is well, you you know when you you have a drill sergeant up there and, and they're pitching a module, how to stand at the position of attention. They're literally spitting a module out of a book word for word. Um, that wasn't fun because memory issues, you know, you got to memorize a lot of stuff and you're evaluated on that. And drill sergeant school is not a school that you want to fail out of um, because that's, that's going to be a negative, huge negative effect on a career. So where, uh, were, so where did, once you pass that, where did you go to drill sergeant? Dude? Uh, Fort Knox, Fort Knox, Kentucky. And that's, that's tank, tankers. That's that's tank world. Yep, that was tank world. Uh, I was in a basic combat training unit, so all we had was the nine week cycles, and then we sent them to their AIT, their advanced individual training. The we didn't have tankers, we didn't have combat arms. We we had all, one third of all of the platoon drill sergeants were required to be infantry or combat arms, uh, and that stemmed out of the Jessica Lynch uh, patrol debacle in Iraq. Because they realized they had um, mechanics and, you know, cooks and whatnot as drill sergeants in the BCT world. And they really needed to learn a little bit more about the tactical part of um, what you have to do to fight to win in combat. So, yeah, one third of us were infantry drill sergeants at in tank world. What that's was, the first place. Oh, go ahead. No, that's the first place I ever realized that there was any uh, strong differences between armor and infantry. 
you know, I'd meet up with some of the infantry guy or the tanker guys. And I'm like, dude, what is going on, man? I'm just a 11 Bravo. Leave me alone. You know, but uh, yeah, I, I can imagine. I remember now, of course, this was at Fort Carson, but I remember, you know, the armor units down there and the infantry guys. And there was always something going on at one of those clubs. Oh, yeah. And they were always showing each other up. What, what was the most rewarding thing about drill sergeant duty? Whew. Well, for me, I um, I had a I had a infantry first sergeant, first sergeant Johnson. He retired out of the army as a sergeant, command sergeant major. He was very, very, very um, professional, and he was very good at the infantry world. And he would allow me to get extra training between cycles. And he, he was like, "Hey, first sergeant Jarvis, you uh." Uh, fifth special forces group is coming in for a couple weeks. You want to go train with them? They're looking to train a fit force because they're getting ready to go to Iraq. I'm like, heck yeah, I'll go shoot. I'll go shoot with them. So I was allowed to do some things like that. So like literally that two weeks I spent with the fifth, fifth special force guys, I was like blown away. I, I shot more in that two weeks than I'd, I'd ever shot, you know, three years prior, probably to include the combat and we had fun. We got to shoot everything. And those guys were just, they were so professional, but they were so like, you know, the, you know, quiet professional is a good term for some of them. And, you know, I took some of the training back for the, the urban fighting, um, the, the mount operations, the building clearing. And I was training my soldiers the same way. I said, well, shoot, if, if he's going to send me to learn this, I might as well just share this knowledge. And, um, and it was funny because the other drill sergeants were like, every time they'd see my guys doing what I was teaching them, this newer type of stuff. You know, like maybe instead of just stacking on the door and entry, but literally having somebody pie the door and then the rest enter, do all the, you know, it, it kind of gave them a little bit of an edge. So when they had their final field training exercise for the um, for the company, my guys were the only ones that didn't shoot the 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 hostage that was in the very first room. <laughs> Probably everybody a good just, thing. Everybody just entered and shot the guy and he was sitting there on his knees with his hands behind his back and, and our guys pied the door and they were the only ones that didn't shoot him. So I thought that was pretty cool. And then after I came off the trail, I had a I had a buddy of mine who was a Sergeant First Class. He's an he was an Arab linguist. Um, he deployed with I think third group up out of Fort Bragg. And he asked my advice, hey, I'm thinking about becoming a drill sergeant. What are your thoughts on that? And I'm like Dude, don't do it, man. You will have no life. I mean, you're literally work like six days a week. You're working 12 to 16 hour days. Yeah. Uh, you, you live for the CQ, the 24 hour duty, because then you get the next day off. Um, but then like literally the day after I said that to him, I had it. I received an email. One of the soldiers that I had trained as a drill sergeant sent me this long email thanking me for all the, the tactical training I gave him because he had his convoy came under attack. They hit an IED and. He was literally the only guy in his his platoon that was out doing anything, and I was like, I called my buddy back. I said, I changed my mind. Go do it. You know, just that one one guy that, to know that you made a difference when that guy went to war. Uh, that was my biggest. You know, made that's the whole a, thing worth. Made the whole thing worth it. That's an awesome story. You know, we talked about that too. You know, the the as leaders being able to influence at least one person out there to make it better, and you probably saved lives because of that. A lot of those soldiers that you trained, Dan, probably excelled because of the training they got. And, and um, that's a good thing because survivability on the battlefield is all about training. Yeah, absolutely. Muscle so, memory. So let me ask you this then. So you got off the trail, like you just said. And then what? tell us about Afghanistan. And then I really want to get to talk about what you're doing now because I think that that's, that's so important. So tell us yeah. about Afghanistan, the differences from Iraq, and then – that transition and then how you got to do what you're doing now. 
Okay. Uh, when I left Fort Knox, I, I got orders to um, Fort Wainwright, Alaska, which is in Fairbanks. And I literally had to drive. I drove my vehicle in February. was the <laughs> worst, the worst idea on planet Earth. Um, but I had a big GMC Suburban. I thought yeah, I was going to be great. I was by myself. And on my trip up there, and I, I, I kid you not, I hit a 2,000-pound bull moose when I crossed from British Columbia into uh, Alaska, like literally on my way to my next duty assignment. And he was so big, I could literally see his entire upper torso above the hood of my Suburban. So that's a big animal. And it just kind of came into the windshield. It flew up over the top, made this awful noise and took out both side view mirrors. That's how long this body was. And fortunately it was that big because if I would hit an airbag, I'd had some serious problems. But um, so I, I get into um, my duty station. I had to have, you know, I had to have a wrecker tow my vehicle from Toke, Alaska to Fairbanks. And then I get assigned to my unit. They were just coming back from their training rotation at NTC, uh, which means I didn't get any train up with my guys and got integrated into a, an MGS platoon. This is God's wonderful sense of humor. An MGS platoon. For, we were in a striker unit. The MGS is the main gun system. So it's a striker with eight wheels and it has a 105 howitzer on it. So guess who's going to be in that platoon? I had tankers in that platoon. And I had, I had a platoon sergeant. Karma, man, a, karma. Yeah, I had a platoon sergeant who was a tanker and my PL was an armor officer. We had three NCOs and some junior enlisted guys that were tankers. But uh, we, we let's let's be honest here. By the end of the deployment, they were 11 Bravos because there wasn't a whole lot of uh, taking that MGSL. Um so I get to the unit and I get assigned to a squad. And of course, the, the squad leader that's losing his job is an E5 because now the E6 is there. So he wasn't happy. It was, you know, that was, you know, I had to try to, to convince this guy, hey, man, it's just the way the way of the world, man. You you know, I'm not going to be your team leader. That's for certain. And so he, he slowly adjusted and. And the platoon kind of got put together as an MGS where like literally the other light or the other infantry units platoons had to give up manpower to fill this platoon. So, you know, who they're giving up, right? This give up that new guy, give up that new guy. So like literally everybody's new. I mean, I've got uh. no combat experience guys with the exception of a sergeant. And I was like, I'm going to die on this deployment. You know, because I had no trade up time. So when we actually got boots on the ground in um, Afghanistan, we, we flew into Kandahar. Uh, we had a lot of um, a lot of downtime in Kandahar and, and not much training time, which really frustrated me. And, we, you know, let's go back to Iraq and the Wolfhounds. We get to Kuwait. Guess what we do? We, we re-zero weapons because somebody in that unit understands that. With every 10 degree temperature drop, your minute dev angle on where your rounds are going to hit drops as well. So we go from Alaska, April, about 40 degrees into Afghanistan, which at that time was probably 90 to 100 degrees and no chances or weapons. We didn't get chances or weapons for probably four or five months. Wow. Because they, they didn't want us to uh, zero on the fob because... They didn't want to disturb the patterns of life because that's that's how different the, the game was over there. And we didn't have a lot of firefight engagements. And another thing is when we got, you know, first unit, we did the right seat ride, left seat ride, had a transition. 
We got literally 45 minutes with a staff sergeant to explain the area of operations and no patrols with them. So we were like, here you go. There's your area of operations. And we're like, crap. You know, obviously two different ways of of management. I mean, two totally different ways of management. So what was the mission then? I mean, what you guys were, (laughs) I mean, what was we? We were in an area, and it was Zabal province, which is between Helmand province and Kandahar province. Helmand and Kandahar were two important strategic areas. Zabal province had no priorities for anything. So we were basically just put in, we relieved uh, two ACR out of Germany, and that's our second armored cavalry regiment. And literally, the commander said, well, let's just start doing missions. All right. Okay. So we just literally started doing patrols. Walking around, you know, the villages, we would go through the bazaar in the daytime and then we would slowly start pushing out farther and farther and further. And, and then once we got to a point where we hit a nerve with somebody, that's when we started taking um, indirect fire. Uh, we went to Daftani, which was it was kind of an area where the, we knew there was going to be some some Taliban presence. And it wasn't that far from our base, but the other unit apparently never went past a certain point. They never patrolled. They just, they were just there. And we started doing patrols, which I think was necessary, but yeah. And I never forget it was uh, May. So we get there probably mid to late April and we're probably three weeks into the deployment. We're having a leadership meeting, a platoon leader, platoon sergeant, squad leaders. And I hear a, I hear a, a thump off in the distance. And I, I looked at everybody and said, we're about to, we're about to take contact. And they're like, yeah, you're crazy. And literally 10 seconds later, that round comes. When you hear that so frequently, you'll never, it's like it's hardwired to your brain. You'll never forget it. I said, we're about to take contact. And we did. And it, the, the round impacted maybe 50, 60 feet from where we were on the other side of our Joe tent. That's what we call the junior enlisted guys um, on the other side of that tent. So somebody called for casualties. So we're running out and literally, uh, moving to the next tent to try to see what's going on with the guys. And an RPG literally air bursted like 10 feet over our heads. Me, uh, my platoon sergeant, another squad leader found ourselves on the ground. We were all concussed, knocked back to the ground, had to get back up and then start treating the casualties and then try to get guys to the bunkers and get accountability of everybody. And uh, we had to have two of our soldiers medevaced um, that on that attack. One of them came back to us and the other one didn't come back. He, he survived, but he had a lot of physical injuries. He's to this day. He still, he still has shrapnel in his hip and has a vision loss and whatnot. So, uh, yeah, that was, that was our first fight in Afghanistan and there was really not much we could, it wasn't much of a fight. It was just us on the receiving end. Uh, they put about two or three rounds of 82 millimeter recoilless rifle rounds, firing a direct weapon in an indirect mode, and they were very good at it. And then some RPGs. And from that point forward, we were pushing out, and then then it became regular. Uh, the artillery would come in. Um, you know, it was just like probably once every two days we were getting something for a little bit, and then it was once a week, and then um, until we were finally out of there. But the the deployment itself. You know, once we took contact and lost, you know, Kean had to, you know, he had to get meta back to the States. You know, that's a that's a big blow to the guys because then that's like, whew, you know, that's when that's when the younger guys realize that, hey, there's no guarantees here. And 
we had to do QRF operation for one of the other platoons. They had lost lost a uh, sergeant, uh, Jeff Shear, um, to an IED blast, and we literally had to go out to that location, secure that site. And you know that when that was the first KIA that we took, you could see it was it was really affecting the guys. How how did the uh, Afghan people? How how did they differ from the Iraqis? Um, the Afghan people were more tribal in nature. I, I know there were some tribal parts of of Iraq, but like you know, if you take a neighborhood here in the United States, and you know, say you have one gated community, and then you have another gated community right down the road. The two don't intermix. And that's kind of the way the, the Afghan culture is like. If you're literally in one village, you do not intermix. Or the only place that they'll interact with is at the bazaar when they're trying to do trade. You know, you don't go from one village to another unless you're visiting family. from, from But that's typically a farther, farther distance. The Afghans were different also. And their, their kids were a little bit, um, you know, a little bit rougher around the edges. They're, they were happy kids when they're playing but every time we go in a village, they just want stuff from us. And then every time we leave a village, they throw rocks at us. We didn't have that with the, with the Iraqi kids. But the Afghan kids did not, did not really care, care for us too much. Also, their, their culture with their women, too. You know, we, we would have to literally brief our guys as we're going into these compounds. Do not make eye contact with our women. Because if you do, their husbands or their brothers or whoever's there is just going to beat the crap out of them. So literally that's why they're all covered up. And so we would have to not have any interaction with the females at all. Uh, you know, we interviewed a couple of cultural support team members, females on the show and uh, mm-hmm. found that very interesting, you know, just, you know, even touching, you know, yeah. the opposite sex was like taboo. Oh yeah. Well, so, yeah. I, yeah it sounds, sounds to me like, well, you know, you could say it was a hell hole. Um, yeah. But interesting lifestyle that that we're definitely unaccustomed to here in the states. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, they they literally like you'd see buses on Ring Road. That's the only hardball road they have, and they call it Ring Road because it goes all the way around the perimeter of of Afghanistan. And they'd be on buses going from one area to the other. They'd stop, then all the men would just get out, and you'd see them squat down. They just do their business right out there in public in front of everybody. That was just kind of awkward. You didn't you didn't really see that in Iraq. Mm. Um, interesting but, so so then you so then that deployment was it sounds to me like it was a whole lot different i mean we're still soldiering but where did you come back to when you came back to the states well before that deployment finished i had to medevac four of my guys mm. home back to alaska or back to wherever they ended up in the states and we had we did lose a soldier who was who was killed uh, the end of my deployment was was really a, a, a kick in the groin because I um, got a Red Cross notification and I lost my mom at the same time. So sorry about that. No, it's this is what it is. I, I always kind of kid around and say my mom went to great lengths to get me out of Afghanistan because I got pulled out about three weeks early to go to the to go to the funeral. Um, went back to Alaska and that one was different. I mean, I received a couple traumatic brain injuries during that deployment. Um, I was having a heck of a time sleeping. So, you know, I did what a lot of us do. I stopped by the class six on the way home, grab a 12 pack of beer and just drink till I passed out. That just kind of became a routine. And of course that's unhealthy. I mean, I think I was like 41 at the time and you know, your, your, your biology is already working against you once as you age and then you throw alcohol in the mix and you know, your, your internal hormones just kind of go go low and crazy and then you come become impulsive and all that other crazy stuff that science neuroscience stuff but um 
yeah, I just got to the point where, you know, I was kind of hoping I'd come out of it and, you know, I never, I never came out of it. You know, I was having the nightmares, you know, the, the thoughts would always pop into my head and, um, the, the soldier Doug that we lost, his, his mom was a, um, Doug was an only child. So seeing what his mom was posting on social media, was just, it was just gut punching me. And, and there was nothing I could do. I mean, I, I would have, I would have traded places with Doug in a heartbeat, you know, but yeah, I really struggled with that because I felt responsible when we lost Doug and as things didn't get better, I'm like, you know what, this this is the rest of my life. This ain't, this isn't for me, you know, had a good run and I had made a decision. It was March of 2013 that I was done. I was going to check out and literally was looking at a rifle in the corner of my room. And I was like, one second, it's over. And then I had kids that lived above me in the apartment and they were running across the floor. And I'm like, all right, kids, high power rifle, bad idea. So I passed out that night and woke up the next morning to a phone call. Ryan, which is my driver and, and one of my riflemen in Afghanistan, says, hey, Sergeant Jarvis, you hear about Corey? I'm like, no, buddy, what, what's, what's going on? He said, Corey shot and killed himself last night. And then I just looked at that rifle and I'm like, holy cow, you know, how did, how do we miss, how do we miss that? And then I realized, well, I had a clue that I was suffering. Nobody. I wasn't married to kids. I, I go home, drink, go to work, repeat. You know, that was my life. Um, so I, after that, that week, we had prepared for the memorial service for, for, for Corey Smathers. And literally, I realized at that point that Doug saved my life by taking his own because I, that no longer could be an option for me because when I saw how it affected the men, I didn't want to be the one to give those guys permission to do the same thing. So I just kind of fought it and I just kind of pushed through it. Uh, Doug or Corey was not the first suicide. He wasn't the only suicide. We, we lost probably five from that company since 2012. Um, that's 5% of the manpower that we had. That's, that's crazy. Sorry so, to hear all that. You know, that's, that's, you know, one of the reasons I know why you're doing what you're doing, but it's another story and uh subject matter that needs to be talked about because I honestly believe it's more than 22, you know? Yeah. It's, it's gotta be more than 22. That's, and I get it because, you know, my PTS journey started at 11 with a sexual assault that I hid for over 40 decades. And then my TBI was an automobile accident, 2012, when all my shit unraveled yeah. and uh, called a crisis center in 2000 and, um, in 2014 and got my shit together. And, and, and then and now I'm doing what I'm doing now. But I hear you, brother. I mean, I my heart goes out to all those people's families and. Anybody out there that's listening and to you too, um, I so, I get it. So, so 2014, you had your traffic traffic crash with TBI. 2012, the, the, yeah. 2012, yeah. The brain is a funny organ. You know, people don't realize that the brain is literally the consistency of peanut butter. That's it inside a, a solid skull with a lot of ridges yeah. and edges. And it's the size of two fists put together. I've learned. Ex- I got a small exactly. brain, man. That's pretty small, but. Yeah. And, and, you know, the army did a study. They were putting sensors on, on helmets for units in combat. And then I think they stopped it because I don't think they wanted to know what the evidence was, was showing because it was showing that, that the men that were in combat were being exposed to a lot more overpressure than, than they, because people were exposed to blast injuries, but didn't exhibit symptoms of TBI. But yet the pressure that was right around their head was higher than what, what should have been. 
um, or would have been considered a concussion. So I, I don't think they wanted that study finished because that would have been bad, and bad then, for business. And then once you damage the brain, and you know this, anybody listening, it, you, you don't fix damaged brain parts. You can build neurons around right. it, but you yeah. cannot damage brain is damaged brain, and you right. you live with it the rest of your life. And you I, gotta, you get, yeah. yeah, you have to rely on that neuroplasticity. But that's you know that's first of all, let me let me say. You know, sharing that story about what happened when you were 11 is, is, is. It sucked. (laughs) Well, I know. Um, But you you don't realize how many people, you know, who are in that same category. And that's one of the problems with people that are experiencing that stuff at a young age gravitate towards professions in like the military or like law enforcement because, you know, they're trying to get, they're trying to safeguard themselves so that it'll never happen again, even though subconsciously they don't understand that. Uh, but, you know, it's why we're getting a lot of suicides, I would imagine, for active members that have never deployed before. You know, they're 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 stuck with their emotions from an event that occurred a long time ago and they don't know how to overcome that. So well, then thanks for pointing that out. You know, Dan, I, I, it's been guesstimated there's seven point seven billion people on the planet. It's been guesstimated that 70 percent of them have been catastrophically traumatized at least one event in their life and then so that's you know five billion people humans that 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 have trauma and then multiple times almost 35 percent so we got a a human population that that's hurting yeah yeah that's 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 huge man because you know i've worked in law enforcement so i I know exactly i mean you can look up any sex offender registry in any state and it's just absolutely mind-boggling. But then if you were to go into their history, I would say predominantly most of them have probably been abused at times. Um, same thing. So it's like a cyclical issue. Well, thank God I never had that issue. But you know what? The well, guy, yeah. But the guy yeah. that – anyhow, it's, it's a show about you. But the perpetrator for me was a – he was a, a kid, a much bigger kid. But he had been a foster child in five or six homes. So I'm wow. thinking, what the hell happened to him that he had to do that to me? Really? Yeah. Holy cow. And then you're you're right. <sighs> Anyhow, you, you know, it's one out of three girls globally before the age of 18 has a story. And for boys, it's one out of five. But now they're suggesting that it that suggesting that it's more because the boys don't come forward. I sure. kept that shit quiet. My dad was an was an army officer. Somehow it would have been my fault. Yep. It effed me up for 42 years and and nothing came out until my until my traffic accident. But, yeah. but anyhow, so tell us about 22 to zero. You're the executive director. What a hell of a well, mission and how can we help? Well, 22 zero, it was kind of an aha moment that I had. Uh, one of my mentors now, his name is Scott Mann and Scott's a retired army green beret colonel. And he's got a nonprofit called the hero's journey. And I was at one of his events and what he does is he helps warriors find their voice and he wants to help soldiers reconnect with the general population by being able to tell their stories, which is very important, especially today. We've been at war since 2001. And, you know, there may be an end in sight. We don't know. But um, if we don't connect with people and tell people our stories, we're never going to let the general public know, hey, this is what war is really about. So that's one of his missions. So I, I learned to tell my story and, and I, I connected with a, um, a clinical psychologist that was at his event because he has he has a psychologist at all the events because he gets a lot of, you know, a lot of combat veterans. And, you know, when stuff comes out, somebody needs to be there equipped to handle it. 
And then I started learning about post-traumatic stress and what it is. And, you know, the way that that Dr. Um, Diego Hernandez explained it to me was it's the memory gets stuck in the neocortex of our brain if you don't process it. Because one of the theories is when we sleep at night and we get our REM sleep cycle, that's the brain's way of filing away all of the data to the long-term memory where it belongs. Well, those of us that have post-traumatic stress have significant sleep issues, so we never get that. So, I mean, insomnia was just is a horrendous thing. And then, and then we self-medicate. So guess what? We don't get it again. So we never literally process the memory. And what happens is we remain in the fight or flight, or as I like to call beast mode. You're stuck in the fight mode where your amygdala is basically turned on and your cortisol levels are shooting to the brain, always throwing those stress hormones. Well, over time, that's very unhealthy. You know, you look at a profession like law enforcement where they don't have an off switch. They're on 24-7. Like you go out in public, you're packing a gun. You're always looking at the doors. You're always at an elevated fight or flight. And that's why so many heart attacks, heart disease, strokes, diabetes, you know, obesity, a lot of of them will, will eat just because it's a stress reaction and that's how they handle it. So a lot of unhealthiness and if you don't deal with that, that's that's a huge problem. So I learned through Diego, there's a couple. Well, Diego does a process called the accelerated resolution therapy. I don't know. If, are you familiar with that? It's I have heard of it. I haven't engaged in it, but I have heard. Yeah. Of it. Accelerated resolution therapy is basically um, based on eye movements where you're literally in about an hour session and you're doing you're following it with your eyes. Um, kind of like, the, you know, the cops just follow the pen, you know, you're, you're, and what they're doing is they're literally mimicking your, your eye movement, like you would have in your REM sleep. And then they'll have you think about the event or emotion or memory. And then what that does is when you start provoking that response and then you start, all right, don't think about the response, just think about how you're feeling. And before you get to it, you're like, all right, this is, this is weird. You know, it's different. It's probably not for everybody. Uh, the success rates on those are probably about 60%, which is good. 60 is better than 20% of the prolonged exposure, you know, 80% dropouts through the VA, through the PE therapy. Um, and then I met uh, another gentleman, Dr. Burt, who is probably like an Einstein. I can only talk to him. Very nice guy, very humble. But you start talking to him and it's like, whoa, you're throwing words out there that I don't have. A, I can't Google it fast enough. You know, and he does something called the Reconsolidation Traumatic Memories Protocol or the RTM protocol. And that one right now, the research is is done. Walter Reed has it. They have an 18 month study going. But the VA has it. They're doing a comparison study between um, the VA and the prolonged exposure and the RTM. And they're over 90 percent success. I think they're right around 92 to 94 percent in research. That's awesome work. Yeah. And, you know, and it's it's big right now. Anything with TBI, yeah. brain, PTS. It's been going on for a while. But like you're pointing out here, Dan, is that, you know, the, the, the systems, the programs are becoming a lot more advanced and more successful. Well, the, the unfortunate problem is our government is stuck on 40 year old you know, technology, you know, or 40 year old treatment methods. They're having a very difficult time transitioning into the stuff that's coming out there because you have to do specific research. And then you got to look at, well, there's a, there's other factors here. Money is going to become an issue because, you know, they're projecting that big pharma, that if they could literally cure post-traumatic stress, not only in the, 
um, veteran space and active military and civilian population, it's about $20 billion to the big pharma companies with medications that people aren't going to need because you go see a doctor and the first thing they do, so go see a psychiatrist, get a prescription, you know, all right, we'll see you next week, you know, and it's just like, they, it's repeating the same process, expecting a different result, we know is the definition of insanity. That's unfortunately the VA right now. But I think once DOD finishes their research and the VA finishes theirs, uh, he's just got published in some, I don't know, some nine letter journal or something that is actually um, going to get them on the map nationally or internationally. So it's coming. They've only done uh, two trainings in the RTM protocol. So literally, our organization, when I realized that there's a there's a cure, there's an answer, you know, we have to share the information, you know, whether it's art or whether it's RTM or whether, you know, it's meditation, you know, not everybody's going to respond the same thing to everything. So you got to be able to find what works for people. You know, I just put my story out on my social media. I'm like, well, here goes, you know, Dan Jarvis Facebook, you know, I did like a 13 minute video. I couldn't shut up, you know, because you got to share it, you know. <laughs> well, I think one thing that you pointed out that I think out of everything we've talked about, which is so flipping significant and, and, and so badly, it's not easy to do. It, it, it is a, it, it's being able to actually have the courage to tell the story because I, I joke about it, but when I first came out, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I can't tell you how many guys behind the scenes and private messaging were like, you know, holy cow, thank you for doing that. By the way, when I was 10 years old, this happened over at Uncle Billy's house. Yep. And I was blown away by how many men out there had very similar stories about my kind of deal. But same with the females. And, and so what I'm getting at is it's not a freaking weakness <clears throat> to tell your story. In fact, it empowers you more than you will ever know. And by you sharing that story, you're authentic. Yeah. You're real. You're a fellow human being that has similar, we have more in common than we have not in common. Yeah. And, you know, it's going to take organizations like the one that you work for now and represent to get things to move forward. Because like you just pointed out, people can get bogged down in the bureaucracy and the commerce of it all. Sure. And, and really where you're headed is the humanity of it all. Yes. And, you know, there's a reason for everything. And that organization, to me, if it can make the difference in one person's life who might be the next doctor or the next teacher or the next good football coach or whoever, whatever they do, then it's significant. And I think everything we can do to support 22 to zero is that's what we need to do. Yeah. Well, you know, that's called leadership. The, the cool thing about the RTM protocol we're actually going to be down in Parkland, Florida at the end of this month because we convinced the, the Research Recognition Project who who's founded that protocol. Hey, look, you know, back to what we talked offline. There's so much um, questioning of veterans organizations anymore because there's so much. I'm like, you guys need to change tactics. I, I said, I hate to say it. You know, I'm here for the veterans and first responders, but. You, you guys need to change your tactics and think about this in the perspective of how it can affect children because nobody's ever going to be get to, getting tired of helping children. So the, the success of the protocol has been used on kids as young as seven years old. So we're going to go down to Parkland where they had the shooting at Stoneman Douglas High School last Valentine's Day, and they're going to train. They're going to try to get at least 20 counselors in a room because 
the reality is the, the protocol literally, depending upon the number of traumas that you've experienced, like if it's just one trauma, within three sessions, it, it, it deals with the submodalities of emotion. So the emotion that you experienced at 11, every tragedy or every stressful event after that got connected to that same feeling. So it kind of weaves into our brain and that's kind of what it does. And what the protocol does is it runs you through a protocol and you don't have to relive the event. They basically will, they'll build some rapport with you and then they'll, they'll ask you to start, you know, rate it, you know, zero to 10. What is your stress on this event? Well, that's like 10. Um, we, we literally brought a Marine in. He hadn't slept more than two hours in 10 years. And he's been dealing with the opiate addiction, like so many of the veterans. I mean, the VA got him hooked on oxycodones and hydrocodones. And then that's all. That's a whole other that story. That is a whole too. other I mean, story. Yeah. So they what 60,000 deaths last year, the year before. Man, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. And there again, there's a lot of money to be made in big pharma. But then they, they most of them will end up going to the street drugs because heroin's cheaper. It's the same thing. There's no difference between what they get on the pharmacy shelf than they get on the street. So this guy literally goes through this 45 minute session with the, with the lead trainer, goes home, goes back to the hotel. We, we raised the money. We flew him down here and his wife and they both went through it. And then he went back to the hotel and they brought him back the next morning. He had his second session, but before he did his second session, they said, so what was last night like for you? He goes, well, he's like, <laughs> one of the things that it does is it makes you extremely tired because it, it, it literally triggers the amygdala and it shuts it off. So all that stress hormones go and your body can actually, and what you typically will have is like an adrenaline dump and fatigue and all the other stuff. So he said, I went back to the hotel. I, I took a two hour nap and then I slept nine straight hours that night. And then they were like, well, is that normal for you? He goes, I haven't slept more than two hours in the last 10 years because of the nightmares. And he said, you know what? Last night I remember my dreams and none of them were bad. And he could literally talk about the emotional part of his event without getting upset. I mean, he, he ended up leaving at like a, a, a emotional level of one versus coming in at a 10. And that's just with, that's, just, just with two sessions. So that's phenomenal work. So the, the cool thing is like what we do is we connect, you know, when I did my story and I put the video out there, uh, I think it got viewed like 9,000 times. And that really scared the crap out of me because I'm not a social media guy, but I had people <laughs> Neither am I. I had people reaching out, you know, hey, man, you know, and I, and I was shocked at how many of the guys that I served with that are still in uniform were at, that were asking for help. So I started finding the closest counselor to where they are. And then I connect with another organization. So we're basically a connecting organization. So we find a counselor for, you know, John Smith in San Diego, or we find a counselor for somebody up in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, you know. Unfortunately, the art the art counselors is about a thousand nationwide. There's not that many of the RTM yet, um, so that's why they're on this push to get as many trained as possible. And that's another thing that we do is like we sponsored three counselors from my area to go out to the first training, and we put them in hotels, airplane, tuition, everything was covered. And they come back, and they are they're they're really going to be the force multipliers in the post traumatic stress. And between two of those counselors, one of them, she's kind of a stay-at-home mom. She's only processed maybe three since 1st October. But the other two are like even at 13, clearing PTSD in 13 people. So now you you multiply that, you know, Central Florida's got 26 counselors trained now. They're about to hopefully have 20 more in South Florida. 
And then I had another counselor reach out to me from Tallahassee. They want one up there. So we're going to organize one up there, you know, and then we, we just kind of, we partner with organizations that are effective and, you know, Dr. Burke with research and recognition. That's why we're willing to go out there and raise funds to get counselors trained. And, you know, we're bringing one here to Winter Haven where I'm from um, in February. So, you know, Florida is going to be, have some pretty good coverage, North, Central, South. So and then they're going to start going around the United States. That's incredible work. So let me ask you this, you know, a couple things. What message do you want to give to the civilian world about combat veterans, especially, and, and then to your brothers and sisters in uniform? And then how do people find out more about your organization? Okay. So to the civilians out there, there's a metaphor that I kind of like to use, and I call it Hilltop 22. I have that on my Facebook and you should get the reference. The the number 22 suicides a day, and we in the military, we like to take the high ground. That's where we're safest. The problem is we're typically pulling security. We're on guard. We're, we're on watch. So right now, today, there will be 22 men or women up on that hilltop, and they're going to make a decision to end their own lives. And young or old, it's irrelevant. Fit, over the age of 50 is, is about 60% of the veteran suicides. So it's, it's, it's a lot in the aging population. So as a civilian, you have the ability to um, kind of come up that hilltop with me and bring these guys and these girls down one at a time. But we got to get the people who don't want help. We got to get them to first want help because they can't do it unless they want help. But we, they have to know what kind of resources are out there. It's not going to happen traditional BA uh, for a while. And if you hear this record, if you hear this uh, podcast and you know somebody who is in that position, um, give them our information, uh, 220, the number 22zero.org. They can connect with us and find somebody close to them that can either do the art therapy or the RTM therapy. Um, for my brothers and sisters out there who are wearing a uniform, my, my advice to you is this. I came very close to ending my own life because as a leader, one, I didn't want help. Not that I didn't want help. I didn't want to ask for help because that we always look at as a sign of weakness. The more I've learned about the brain, which is a lot more than I would like to know about the brain, <laughs> I've realized that, you know, we're exposed to things that we can't control. So if you're on active duty and you're a leader, do not berate your men or your women under you if they want to go get help. If they need help, you know, what you need to do is say, all right, let's go. Make them go. That's what I used to do. I wouldn't take my own advice, but when I saw one of my guys struggling, I would make them go and I would take them to mental health. And then, of course, then I was like, oh, sorry, Jarvis, taking another one down there, you know. But it took the responsibility away from them from having to ask. And it, because when we lost Corey, did, I did not want to lose another. So when we saw something, we took them. Take your, take your people, take care of your people. But at the same time, you got to take care of yourself. And another thing that we do is if you're an active duty military, you can reach out to us as well at that same 220.org or on our Facebook. And there are organizations we, we've kind of, you know, Camaraderie Foundation is another one. They'll pay for therapy for post 9-11 veterans. Um, I'm trying to get them. I wish they would go all veterans, but they, you know, their budgets aren't that big. But they will literally pay for you to go to treatment so you can literally go off post you don't have to tell anybody in your chain of command and they don't report anything to the army you, nothing's reported to the va go go take care of yourself so that you can take care of your family and be that nco or that officer that you're meant to be or that soldier that you're meant to be um, and clear up the, the traumatic memories because it's literally it's doable uh it's you know you, you don't have to sit there and, and carry that baggage so 
Yeah. First responders, same thing. You know, we all, we all want to be tough guys and suck it up. And it's that John Wayne mindset, you know, Florida, we've had what, uh, two or three first responder suicides. I know, I know, um, Hillsborough County Sheriff's office had a deputy murder two of his, two or three of his family members and killed himself. And then Pinellas County has had two, um, suicides since October of 2017. You know, it's, it's, it's unnecessary. You don't have to, um, to deal with the trauma. It, it's, it's literally, and I, I, all I can say is reach out, we'll put you in contact, go see somebody. And if it works, hey, you get your life back. Well, thank you for that. You know, a, a couple of things here. Just you want to, first of all, thank you for taking the time to be on straight out of combat radio, to tell your story, you know, candid, real, authentic, definitely appreciate it. I'm so glad as I know a lot of other people who you're helping now, you know, you're in the business of healing and education now, and I'm glad you made it back safe. And uh, I'm glad that you were able to work through those things that you were dealing with because, you know, you, you're, you're, you're a motivator. You're an inspiration to a lot of people out there. And I know the organization that you're with 220.org is changing people's lives. And uh, I just can't say enough about, you know, being out of uniform and, still continuing on with the mission. And this time it's a little bit different from the business of soldiering, but in a way it's, 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 it's an important equally, you know, it's just as, as important. Right. It is critical to have a mission. If you're transitioning, Absolutely. if you're transitioning out of the military, you need a mission and you need one fast. Well, that's a good point. So again, there you have United States army decorated veteran, Daniel Jarvis. He's the executive director of 220.org changing people's lives uh and if you're in that place reach out to him and how do they get a hold of you dan hey, you can call me on my cell phone 863-221-6304 my wife hates well, it you. my wife hates it when i give that out but it's too important <laughs> is that hey it is important and i appreciate that and uh again i can't say enough how humbled and privileged i am to actually see you face to face here on this podcast and uh i look forward to the day that we can actually meet each other in person and all I can say is keep going, uh, Sergeant, and uh, God bless you, man. Amen. God bless America. Thanks for sharing your story as well. You gotta light them up before they burn it down. Thank you for listening to another episode of Straight Outta Combat Radio, audio medicine from Green Zone Hero. If you liked what you heard, then tell others about us. Like us and download us. And please remember, freedom is not free. And combat veterans are vital assets. They're not broken. 